The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. It's great to have you here today. Thanks for coming. We are talking about marriage today. Uh, we've been in a series this winter, and I'm going to call it spring, right? Today's good enough. Let's call it spring. Um, called God's Design. We've just looked at what is, what is God's plan? How has God created us? We've seen that He's created us as His image bearers. He loves us. We have amazing dignity and value because we've been created in His image. Uh, we've talked about God's design for sex. We've talked about God's design for men and women. We've talked about how God has designed us to be loved by Him so that we can love others. So a lot of, a lot of big topics we've been hitting. But today we're going to hit one that I think culturally is just a huge one, um, the topic of marriage. Particularly if you are to say uh, in our culture today that you align with the biblical plan of marriage, uh, you're, you're going to be in a smaller and smaller minority of people that are going to think, oh, that's awesome. I'm glad you're, uh, that's your, your view. Uh, let me give you an example. This week, Andrew Hancock, one of our pastors, sent me a kind of a flow chart that's circling the internet. And it has these different boxes. And one of the boxes said, do you believe? And it basically gave a description of a biblical marriage. And so if you answered yes to that, the flow chart would take you down to a box that says this, have fun living your sexist, chauvinistic, judgmental, xenophobic lifestyle choice. The rest of the culture will advance forward without you. It's like, ouch. You're like, it doesn't seem like that long ago that to throw out a biblical view of marriage would actually be embraced. And so that doesn't make me mad to read that. It doesn't make me defensive. It makes me sad because I just think people don't understand kind of in this whole series that, that we have a beautiful designer, that God, when he designs things, it's for our best and it's for our good. Um, I've done a lot of premarital counseling, I, at least a hundred couples. And some of those couples will come here and they don't necessarily believe in the Bible. They just wanted Christian counseling about marriage. And so I can honestly tell you, every couple that I've had time to sit down and describe God's plan for marriage, they may come in with some hostility, but, but it makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to ask for your you know, understanding and your, your listening this morning to, to really see the beauty in God's design here uh, for marriage. But definitely we're in a culture that is just really struggling to, to get its hands around what marriage is all about. In fact, there's two major trends um, that I'm catching um, one is, uh, for example, the divorce rate in our, in our culture. Today, it's, it's pushing 50% and a little higher. Back in 1960, it was, it was like 25%. Um, some other trends that are heading maybe away from what I would say would be the biblical pattern. Um, in, our, in our country today, less than 50% of the people are, are married. Back in 1960, again, it would be around 75%. Uh, another trend is toward cohabitation. Let's see if we can test drive this relationship and see if we should get, get married. And so in 1960, that was negligible. Hardly anybody was doing that. But today, for a person in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, somebody in that 20-year span of their life, it's almost 50% of the people will at one time uh, live together before, before marriage. And so that's a trend we see and the actual thought is, let's, let's, again, test drive this and see if we're compatible sexually and romantically and emotionally, and, and let's give it a ride. And actually, the statistics bear out that that doesn't help. In fact, the University of Chicago had a study that showed that, that couples that, pre, that, that cohabitate before they're married, the, the likelihood of them divorcing is over 50% higher 
than those who chose not to live together. So, but that's one trend. Another trend is what one author calls the me marriage. The me marriage. So instead of marriage being about us, um, um, it used to be about us, now it's about me. And so the goal then is to go find somebody who's going to be low maintenance in your life. Like somebody who's going to totally accept you for who you are. Not step in there and try to change a lot of things. Somebody who's going to help me fulfill my goals and my needs. And so uh, I think you can kind of see how that's going to play out too. If you have two people looking for each other to meet their needs, that's just going to throw a lot of challenge and a lot of stress on that relationship. You guys, I, I just want to say this morning, it is so important for us to elevate God's design for marriage. It's beautiful. We who, uh, who believe in this plan need to articulate this well because it, it's becoming a litmus test issue that if somebody asks you your belief on marriage and you happen to roll out God's plan, people could just instantly discount you. And I, I realize there's some of us here this morning that aren't totally sure we're on board with what God's design is today. So, uh, and I, I also want to say, when we talk about marriage, uh, there's, there's pain in this room too. There's some of you who saw a bad marriage growing up, a very, and that inflicts pain on you. There are some of you who are not married and you would love to be married. And there are some of you that are in a tense marriage right now. And just how do we, so I just want to be, uh, what I want to do is just lift up our, our God, who is an amazing God who loves us. And everything he designs is for our flourishing, is for our good. And I want that to prevail this morning. I want us to clearly see what he has designed for us. And so before I speak, I'm going to invite you to pray. And could you just pray quietly that God would speak to you this morning, that he would teach you something fresh about who he is and about his design for marriage. Could you ask him that right now? And would you pray for me too? I will be the first to say I am not a perfect husband. And we all need to know there is not a perfect marriage in this room or watching online. Um, there is not a perfect wife or perfect husband. We are all broken people. And I'll put myself at the front of that line. I have seen what my words have done. I have seen what my actions have done to a marriage and a family. And so uh, would you this morning pray for me that I would speak very clearly, that I would speak God's words um, humbly and powerfully. God, you're amazing in your love for us and amazing that you want to communicate with us. I pray that happens this morning powerfully through your word. And before we start diving for guilt bunkers, Father, or start just backpedaling, uh, just, just remind us of your love for us, that you constantly pursue us in your love. So just overwhelm us with that fact this morning. In your great name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, go to Genesis chapter 2, second chapter in the whole Bible. We're looking at God's design for marriage. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow on your phone app if you want to. There will be verses on the screen. You have an outline in the bulletin you got. You can follow along with us, okay? So in Genesis chapter 2, um, we see God's design for marriage. It follows Genesis 1, where we looked at this at the beginning of God's, the God's design series, that, that it shows us how out of nothing God created the heavens and the earth, and it goes all the way through all the different elements of God's creation that he made. And at the very end, uh, the, the end of that chapter highlights the peak of God's creation. 
and that's you and me, men and women created in the image of God. That's the only image bearers on this planet, the only ones that can communicate with God and be known by God and loved by God. So that's how chapter one ends. Chapter two now circles back at the creation story and it hones in on the creation of men and women. And it's in that context we see the creation of the first marriage. And so we see Adam was created first and that he's placed in this perfect setting. He's placed in a garden that's just a lavish garden with a beautiful river and just trees. And and the Bible describes it as having gold and precious gems. It's actually very much like the description of heaven that you see in the book of Revelation. It was a place where there was no sin. It was a place where Adam walked and communicated openly with God. And it was a place where Adam had a work to do. Work is a blessing from God. And so Adam, can you imagine every day of your life being the most fulfilled day you ever had at work? Because you're using your gifts fully. You are serving God directly. There's no sin. Uh, there's no co-workers to deal with, right? It's just you and God. Like in so many ways, Adam had the perfect set up. But yet when God looked at Adam's situation, Genesis 2.18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So up till now, everything God made, he said was good, good, good. It was good. It was good. It was good. The first thing that is not good was that Adam was alone. And now don't go there saying, yeah, yeah, I've got a planet with just one guy. That's disaster. Um, You could go that way. Um, But it was more than that. It was more than, it was the fact that, that Adam was alone and he could not find uh, community and relationship and fellowship. Not with the monkeys or the hippopotamus or the dogs and certainly not the cats, okay? So it's just not, it's not happening. Open relationship with God, very fulfilling work, but something was missing. And so as image bearers of God, we are created to be in relationship with others. Just like God in his, who God is, he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's perfect love in the Trinity, in the persons of God. And so they, they give and receive perfect love. And so we are designed to do the same, not just in our relationship with God, but with others too. Uh, and so we'll talk about that next week. Next week we're talking about singleness and community. And um, I, I should throw this out there too. And we're going to answer the top two or three questions that you as a church have about this whole series. So there's a card in your bulletin. Write out your question, leave it on the seat. We got some doozies last hour, okay? So we'll take the top two or three most popularly asked questions. We'll try to address them, okay? That's next week. But when God looked at Adam and said, it's not good that he's alone, two things he did, two purposes for marriage that just jump out at you in this design. First is that he says, I'm going to make a helper fit for him, okay? Immediately, there's a few words that are like lightning rods in our culture today. When you see the God's designed for marriage, this could be one of them, okay? So Eve's going to be a helper, do his laundry, do his cooking, pick up after him, bring him his third beer as he's sitting there in his whitey-tighty t-shirt watching football all day. That doesn't sound fun. Well, that's a complete misunderstanding of that word helper. It's a very strong word. It's used of God three different times in the book of Psalms. Throughout the Bible, it's used of Jesus. It's used of the Holy Spirit. It's a word that's used in military context. So basically, God is saying, Adam, I'm going to bring a strong force into your life. 
I'm going to bring a, not just a helper, but I'm going to bring somebody who's powerful and who completely complements you. Where you are weak, she is going to be strong. You guys are going to be a powerful team together. So if there's one part of God's design for marriage that often gets overlooked, but I think it's an awesome one, is that God brings men and women together with their mutual strengths, complementing each other so that they can serve him together. I love laying that out in premarital counseling, that, that one of the reasons God is bringing you together is that people besides you are going to be blessed because he has brought you together. Genesis 12 talks about how God loves to bless us so that we can bless the families of all the nations of the earth. Like, it's powerful what God can do through a man and woman using their strengths to complement each other and serve God. So I throw that out there to married couples this morning. What's your so that? Like, why did God bring you together? And that can, be, that can be incredibly mobilizing. It can be unifying to know that there is a cause beyond ourselves that God has joined us together for. Okay, so I, I love that part. You see that there. But I think if I had to say, what's, a, what's an even higher purpose for uh, marriage? I would say it's intimacy, okay? So you jump down to Genesis 2, 24 and 25. He's, God has already said, it's not good that man is alone. This is what God says, or the Bible says, says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Okay, so one beautiful thing that God pictures for marriage is that this is going to be a place of, of deep intimacy between a man and a woman. This is the only time the word one flesh is used to describe a relationship in the Bible. And it's unity, it's intimacy on many levels. You see the physical level here and that they were naked and there was no shame in that. Again, when we talk about God's view of sexuality, God intends sex to be an amazing gift for a husband and a wife in the context of marriage. And so naked and not ashamed. So definitely physical intimacy, but also emotional and spiritual. That word that we just read where it said, hold fast to your wife, it had nuances where that meant a sexual connection, but it also had nuances, um, maybe more generally, to be very close together in many ways. It was often used in, in construction of gluing different components together. It's a very, very tight bond. And what an amazing gift from God that when he looked down and saw Adam's need, uh, the need he really noticed was the need for intimacy, the need for uh, just a one flesh relationship. And so let me say this too. One thing you don't want to miss from this passage. I was single for a good chunk of my days. I met Lori when I was in my late 20s, got married around 30, okay? So I, I was single for a while, and I've been around single folks. We have an amazing singles ministry here, by the way, grad group folks, right? These are awesome. So like, um, so sometimes though, and I probably said it at times, you'll hear like, some, sometimes you'll hear a guy say, well, there's, there's no one to date or there's no women there, or there's no girls there, or whatever. Adam was the only guy that could legitimately say that, okay? Like, so there weren't any, just there were no women at all. He was, he could legitimately say that. And what's so awesome is that didn't, that didn't stop God from meeting that need. That God created, as you read Genesis 2, created Eve out of Adam's side. Like, how, how does that happen? Who thinks about that? Uh, but that's God responding to a need. And so I throw that out there this morning as we're hearing God meeting a need of deep intimacy and team, a teammate. Man, there's some of us this morning that your heart just aches. You long for that. 
Some of you are in a marriage and you long for that. Some of you are single and you long for that. Some of you have been married and you long for those days again. Just please know that your God is not an uncaring God. When he sees a need, he meets a need. And he did that clearly here in his design for, for marriage. We'll talk about that in a more general way next week as we talk about communities, we talk about singleness, okay? So, so we see those two purposes in marriage, a teammate and then an intimate relationship. And so you look at that and you go, okay, so what happened? Like, how come we don't see that? How come I'm not living in that kind of marriage? Or how come I don't see a lot of marriages going like that? And so we've talked about this a couple of times in the God Design series, that there's a narrative you see throughout the Bible that there was creation. And you see what God created in Genesis 1 and 2. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall, where the first man and woman rejected God and rejected his design. Remember, there were two lies that they believed about God. One lie was that God is not good. His design is not good enough for you. There's, he's holding out on you. If you follow God's design, you're going to miss out. That's a lie that they were told, Adam and Eve, and they believed. That's a lie that we hear and battle every week of our lives. God is not good. He's holding out on you. And the second lie was this. You can be God. You can make the decisions about how a marriage works, about how sexuality works. You can do whatever you want. Those are two lies that Adam and Eve believed. And what it did is it cut them off from their relationship with God. Sin broke all that God designed. It broke, uh, you know, we've looked at just many ways that that was broken. One thing it does to us as people is that when God's design was that he would be God, he's the one we worship and love. And then when we are so filled with that and so satisfied by God, then we're freed up to love and serve other people. But when you take God out of the equation, guess who replaces him? That's us. And so when we become God, when we look at other people, we look at them as people we need to manipulate or or come on strong on so that they will meet our needs. Instead of God meeting my needs, now I rely on other people to completely meet my needs. And you can just see what that does to a marriage. You can just see what that does to, to our relationships. And we said when that happens, the dignity of humanity is just shattered. And you see that throughout world history. You see in particular the domination of men over women. Instead of, uh, you know, when Adam first saw Eve, he just broke out in a song. It's like, this is awesome, God. Look who you've provided for me. And you go from that beautiful picture to now you look through history. And because of the brokenness of humanity, you see in many times men just abusing women or just dominating or just, it's, we use this line when we talked about um, when God's, image is shattered in us. We said when the image of God is not observed, the most vulnerable are abused and consumed. And that often falls on women and on children. And so, so what we're seeing now uh, is, 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 a, is an evidence of, and it's a picture of um, God's design being shattered because of sin. And so the Bible goes on in the narrative of the Bible, and the next, the next phase it's offered us is redemption that this is the whole reason why Jesus Christ came to earth, is that he moved toward us. We rejected God. We are now living in a broken mess. And that Jesus, because of his love for us, entered into our world. He lived a perfect life. He offered himself as the sacrifice for our sin and our brokenness. He offers to save us from sin. So that means any one of us this morning that is convicted of our sin, and a lot of times our sin is made evident in how we do in a marriage or how we do in a family. When our sin is so evident to us, what do we do with this? Jesus says, give me your sin. 
confess it to me, uh, repent of your sin, uh, admit that it's wrong and give it to me. And then Jesus offers to forgive you of sin. And then Jesus offers to give you a power to overcome sin in your life. That's this whole chapter in the Bible, this whole phase now called redemption. And so what we see now is that God is about taking men and women, broken sinners who respond to Jesus, who now through Jesus begin to redeem this design of marriage. And I don't think it's an accident, but one of the longest passages in the New Testament that talk about marriage is in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible and you want to flip there, we're going there next. Ephesians 5 verse 18 And what's really unique about the book of Ephesians is that it's kind of a shorter book, only six chapters, but there's a a prevalent theme in that book. It's It's the phrase, in Christ, that you are in Christ 27 times in six chapters. Ephesians reminds us that we are in Christ. And so that that phrase means that Jesus has forgiven you, Jesus has adopted you as son, daughter, the father has, and now you are lavished with gifts by Jesus to begin to live out and fulfill the roles that God has for you. Let me just give you one example of many in Ephesians, like Ephesians 1, 3 to 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. What an amazing gift. I mean, just take that phrase there, blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That's your new identity in Christ. Is that when you admit you're a sinner, you admit you need a savior, Jesus says, I forgive you, and now may you find your identity in me. Will you be in Christ? And then when you are lavished with all that Christ gives you, then you are free then to share that with other people. And in the context of a marriage, that's a husband and wife sharing what they're receiving from Jesus with each other. And so you receive that new identity, you're in Christ, and then when you start following Jesus, you get a new power, and that power is called the Holy Spirit, that everyone who believes in Jesus is then indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it's, again, not an accident. When you look at this whole section in Ephesians, it talks about marriage, parenting, um, relationships at work. It all is prefaced with Ephesians 5.18, which says this, uh, don't get drunk with wine, because this is a debauchery, that means it's a, it's a waste of time. Uh, but be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so that's verse 21. So verse 18 and verse 21. So he's saying there, just like you have seen what alcohol, the dumb places that takes us, right? The dumb things that get said, the dumb things that get done because of the control of alcohol. Don't get drunk with wine. That leads to some incredibly stupid places but instead be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So flip that like three, or 360 degrees, go the other direction. Like what are the amazing things that can come out of your life that you go, wow, where did that come from? Why did I say that? That was powerful. That was really helpful, wasn't it? Or where did that good act come from? I, wow, look what God did through me. And so you're in Christ, a new identity, and then you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So it's with those two provisions now God says, this is my design for marriage. We're going to look at Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. So let me just pause and say, any of us trying to crank out uh, a marriage that is mutually fulfilling and is honoring to God on our own strength, it's not going to happen. Okay, so now before I start stepping into husbands do this, wives do that, 
Don't go like, okay, I got to do, I got to try harder. I got to do a better job at this or just start elbowing. Like you got to do a better job at this or that. Just we're all leveled right here and say the only way we can pull off this kind of marriage is what Jesus offers us in our identity in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? Everybody got it? So don't just try to crank this out. This is what God wants to do through you, uh, through Jesus, okay? So let's go. Let's talk about wives here, okay? So get ready. One of the lightning rod verses of the New Testament coming your way, okay? So here we go. Ephesians 5, verses 22, 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Nobody, nobody loves the word submit. Like, you don't just, oh, I can't wait to submit. Like, you don't, you probably have not said that, okay? So, uh, again, um, a lot of times that verse is a total cause of rejection of even looking at God's design for marriage. But I, I can promise you, every time I've had a chance to explain this with couples in my office, it, it's actually a beautiful picture. So let's, let's try to do this. Here we go. And I want to say three things about submit. The first one is this. Number one, the verb submit in that verse is actually pulled from Ephesians 5, 21. Remember the statement says, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So one thing the Holy Spirit empowers you to do with any relationship within the church is not to put yourself first, but to put others first because you are so in awe of Jesus. You are so aware of what Jesus has done for you. You don't need to manipulate and empower up on other people. Your needs are met by Jesus and then you can move in and build up others. So that tone, that, that quality of submission should be characteristic of all of us in our relationships with each other as followers of Jesus, okay? So now what Paul is doing is he's taking that quality and saying, okay, wives, this is something I want you to do. This is a role I want you to play within your marriage. But the point is, she's taking that role into a, a, an atmosphere in a marriage where there's a husband already doing that for her. He also is submitting to her out of reverence for Christ, okay? So that's first point. The second point is this. Uh, get a little grammar lesson here this morning. The verb tense is uh, a middle voice, which means this is something you choose to do. Uh, nowhere in the Bible is there a command, thou shalt power up on somebody else and force them to submit to you. That, that's not uh, New Testament language. The language here is, wives, this gift of submission is something you choose to give to your husband. You're giving this to a man whose character you respect and a man whose position as head, as leader of this marriage, you deeply respect because you know the one who has designed this is your loving father. And out of your reverence for Jesus Christ, this is a role that you will play. You are choosing to do this. You are not being forced to do this. But this is your response uh, to a loving God and to his design. And this is your response to your husband, okay? And the third one we need to hit on is this, is that submission is not a second-class role, okay? Uh, Jesus played this role. There's two specific times. Um, one was when Jesus was 12. You have to read the stories in Luke 2. Uh, he was on a trip with his parents. His parents went three days and didn't know where he was. They, they left him in one of the biggest cities. It's like you guys taking a 12-year-old and then to New York City, and for three days you don't know where they are, okay? So you have to read the story, but finally they get reunited. 
And the next verse after that, I would have thought would have been, and Jesus asked the Father for new parents. You know, like it could have been, could have easily gone that way, right? But instead it said Jesus submitted to his parents and he continued to grow in, you know, in, in stature and in favor with men. So in favor with God. So basically that was a time where Jesus clearly played that role of submission. An even more profound way was when Jesus came to die on the cross for us. He submitted to his Father's plan uh, to rescue us from our sin. It wasn't like he drew the short straw in the Trinity. It's like, oh, crud, I got to go die on the cross. Like, or it wasn't like, how come you don't send the Holy Spirit? Like, nobody could see him anyway. Like, just send him. And just, there wasn't an argument, but this is a role that he played. You look at a chapter in the Bible, Philippians 2, just beautifully describes how Jesus went humble, how he laid down his life. And so, but by no means did he give up uh, his dignity in doing that? Did he give up his value or his worth? He never stopped being fully God as he did that. In fact, because of his submission, the Bible says, Philippians 2, that Jesus is now lifted and he is the name above all names. That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So submission is not a second-class role. And so... Um, I love this quote from Kathy Keller. She's one of the co-authors of a book called The Meaning of Marriage. And she says this, if it's not an assault on the dignity and value and equality of Jesus to take the subordinate role in becoming the savior of the world, then how can it hurt me to play the subordinate role in the marriage? So if I could just summarize, and gosh, we could do sermons on all of this, okay? And I'm already gonna go long. A spoiler alert there. So, but, um, but here's a summary. Submission is an inclination uh, to receive and affirm a husband's leadership. And guys, when you do that, the benefits of that are powerful. Um, it's an incredible blessing to your husband um, who is called by God, not because he's better than you or because he earned it, but he is called to be the leader of the marriage. And that's, that's God's design. Um, we're not given a lot of explanation why, but we are pretty clearly told that that's God's design. And so as a leader, that means you're going to have to step out. And there's times where, obviously, if you're leading, you're going where maybe nobody else has gone. And so how I know as a leader, it is incredibly inspiring to have teammates that have your back and that are going with you. It doesn't mean your teammates never can tell you, oh, you're taking a wrong turn there, or hey, you're leading us over a cliff. I mean, it doesn't mean why if you have to be silent in all this, but that your husband knows the, your inclination is to receive and affirm his leadership. That is an amazing gift that you give to this guy, all right? Um, I've asked a couple of women to um, kind of share their perspective. And so these are two women that feel these kind of questions a lot, and I admire both of their husbands. Again, no perfect marriage in this room. These aren't two perfect marriages either, but I love how they describe how submission has been a gift and a benefit to them. So let's, let's watch. Let's watch this. I believe God's design for marriage truly is beautiful. And when I look at Ephesians 5, um, the role that God's given husbands and what he's called them to is to lay down their lives for their wives and for their families. Um, and what he's called women to is to submit to their husbands, to come under their leadership, which Jesus did before the Father. Um, I think some of the most uh, significant advice I've ever gotten about the area of submission doesn't have to do as much with marriage. Um, I remember someone saying that 
how we choose to respond to people in authority over us, whether it's a spouse, whether it's um, a boss, uh, whoever it is, how we choose to respond to those authority figures is so much more indicative um, of how we're choosing to respond in our hearts to Christ's authority. One way that I see that played out in my marriage is um, I have a tendency to overcommit in my schedule. And God's given me a husband that knows me well, knows my strengths, knows my abilities, and knows that, it, that it's true of, of me that I will overcommit myself. And I've learned that if I'm willing to open up my schedule to him and ask him to speak into it, that he's so good at helping me sift through um, what I should say yes to and what I should say no to. So I not only survive week to week, but I really can thrive in the things that God has called me to do. So uh, probably anyone who knows me well enough um, would, would say that I'm a fairly independent, um, kind of strong-willed person. Um, and so when I met Charlie, I think one of the things that stood out to me immediately was, was both how, um, how strong and how independent he is. His character just really demanded my respect. Um, but he really won me over with his gentleness and his kindness towards me. Um, and so even now, is, you know, there are times we have conflict in our marriage or I want one thing and, and he doesn't agree. Um, it's his gentleness that wins me over um, and causes me to, to be willing to submit to him and, and to trust that I can submit to him and be safe. Uh, it's so much like the gospel because Jesus was called to lay down his life so that we could live. And as my husband lays down his life, it enables me to live and to thrive in our marriage. And what I, what I want to pick up on is how both of those women kind of ended what they were saying with us. They both pointed to their husbands and how their husbands are leading their marriage. Guys, that leads us right into our part of this passage as well. Um, our, our challenge, and obviously I will admit the challenge to submit is, is massive, uh, but if you look at Ephesians 5.25, I would suggest this is at least equally as massive, if not maybe slightly more massive. Okay, so look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, sometimes trying to break the ice in humor, you could say, wives, we know you're submitting, but at least you get to live. Like the husband is called to die. And, and that's, that's the parallel. Just like Jesus was the head, the leader of the church. How did he show love for the church? He died for the church. He gave himself up for the church. Husbands, now you're the leader of this marriage. How are you going to lead? There's nowhere in the husband section where the word headship is used. It's not husbands, headship your wives. Like just lead them. Like just, in fact, the word love appears six times. This might help you too. The wives got 47 words in that section. The guys get 143. Like so more for us to sink into our heads or you can, you can fill in the blanks for why God gave men more words. But what is clear to men is like in your leadership role, you are to love and to lead like Jesus loved and led the church. And so again, love can be such a vague word we use today. What's that mean? Romance and flowers and well, let's just cut it straight. First John 3 16. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Whenever the New Testament defines love, it makes a line to the cross. There can be no higher love than what Jesus did for us, okay? And so every time the word is used, husbands love your wives, it's the same Greek word agape 
that's used to describe God's love for us. It's unconditional. It's relentless. Uh, it never stops. Um, it, it is constant. And so, husbands, the tone you set in your marriage then is to love your wives like Christ loved the church. One of the most practical advice pieces of advice I got in premarital counseling was um, from this passage where the guy who counseled me said that every week I should be able to answer a question, how did I sacrifice for Lori this week? How did my love for her cost me something? That I am truly, if I am truly loving her like Christ loved the church, my love would need to be uh, sacrificial. And the verb there for guys in our love is a present imperative. It means this love should be constant. It should be regular. It should be a description of how you lead your marriage. It should just be famous for evidences of sacrificial love for your wives. And so this was radical in Paul's day. In, in, in the day of the New Testament, of that culture, um, men were not commanded to love. They were commanded to force their wives to submit. And so Paul's writing into, into his culture a whole new way. Uh, it's an elevation of women. It's an elevation of women created in the image of God, bearing dignity as image bearers, uh, having dignity because Christ has died for them, just like Christ has died for men. So guys, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And there's a second part to our calling, guys, that continues in verses 26 and 27. So love our wives as Christ loved the church, uh, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she might be holy and without blemish. Guys, from this, you can glean that one of your roles in marriage is to spiritually lead your wives. And that means that you're also uh, making sure that you are growing spiritually, that there is a spiritual culture in your home. The phrase there about Jesus sanctifying us and cleansing us with washing. Back in Paul's day, the washing, you know, I mean, it's nice when we get to bathe regularly, right? Otherwise, we smell not so good and all of that. In Paul's culture, it was essential because washing and bathing was how you fought off infection. It's how you, you prevented death in your life by, by washing and scrubbing and getting the dirt off. And so in a spiritual sense, the same is true in a marriage, that husbands, you are called uh, to be the first one to confess sin, uh, to, to seek your wife's forgiveness, um, to the very first one to be honest about your own brokenness, and the first one to, to say, we need to take this to Jesus. We need Jesus to help us. You heard in the video promoting the conference this weekend that, that one of God's purposes in marriage one author just flat out says it. God didn't give us marriage to make us happy. God may gave us marriage to make us holy. Because as you get closer and closer with another person who is as sinful as you are, and you cram each other into this one flesh relationship, there's going to be conflict, right? There's going to be uh, evidence of sin in each other's lives. So what do you do with that? And the beautiful thing that God loves to do out of marriage, and guys, you've got to lead this, is that we take our sin to Jesus. And that we go first. We, we confess, we admit, we seek forgiveness. And that sets a whole culture and a whole tone in your marriage where your wife is free to do the same thing. And that together, instead of hiding your sin from each other, you get to that point where your sin can be, be exposed, be confessed and forgiven, and then given to Christ so that there's real growth in this relationship. And that's a powerful thing. Remember, clear back God's original design was that men and women would be a team 
to have dominion over the earth, to do his work. What a beautiful picture as God tries to redeem marriage back to its original design that man and woman can come together in marriage and be teammates in fighting sin in each other's lives, in, in seeing it, exposing it, confronting it, um, confessing it, taking it to Jesus, and then seeing amazing growth. In premarital counseling, I use this equation with couples. It's conflict plus resolution equals intimacy. The constant in that equation is conflict. There will always be conflict in a marriage, but the key is to learn to resolve that. Again, by confessing it, by seeking forgiveness, and by giving it over to Jesus. Conflict plus resolution equals intimacy. And there's amazing opportunity for growth in any marriage this morning if Jesus can enter and be the center of that marriage, showing women how to uh, come alongside and, and submit in such a powerful way to her husband as he courageously leads and loves and sacrifices and goes first in dealing with his own sin. What a powerful picture. You know, I don't think it was an accident that Satan didn't show up until Genesis chapter 3. Because I think Satan was afraid of the power that could happen if you took men and women living surrendered lives, uh, mutually serving each other. The power that can come out of that is staggering. And so I think the same is true today. If you are married this morning, just consider there is a target on your back because the enemy hates what's happening and what Jesus could potentially do. I want to say this. There's an amazing statistic I just came across a couple years ago. The couples who said their marriage was unhappy, they were even on the verge of divorce, that, that a big percentage of those couples, 70% of them, five years later, described their marriage as happy. Isn't that amazing? If there's not a perfect marriage in this room, but there is not a marriage in this room that is beyond hope right now of Jesus Christ stepping in and doing amazing things as husband and wife surrender to him. And as you look at the end of chapter five, one of the beautiful things God does in a marriage is that he puts the gospel on display. That as a husband moves toward his wife in love and lays down his life, he pictures for this world, even in a small way, but he pictures a much grander demonstration of love when Jesus moved toward us in our sins. And wives, when you submit to your husband, you model for this world the way the church is to respond to Jesus, is to move toward him and affirm him for what he has done for us in his love and receive him and follow him. What a beautiful picture that, that paints. And so let's do this. Um, I skipped over something I want to hit real quick. So um, wives, we saw a video and I gave you a couple things. Guys, let me do this for you. How do we, what are some practical things we can do to show our, lives, our, our wives that we love them? Um, I'm part of this men's group called Fight Club. There's about 100 guys on our email list. Not everybody shows up every week. But last October, we surveyed the wives of Fight Club guys and just asked them an open-ended question. Tell us as men, what should we keep doing? What should we stop doing? And what should we start doing? And guys, so I got some great responses. It was just powerful reading through them. And the guys actually had the courage to show up for three weeks in a row. One week we just looked at, what should we keep doing? That's like a pat ourselves on the back. It's going great, guys. But they even came back for the next two weeks too. But um, it was powerful. But here's some themes, guys, that we heard just from our wives crying out. Guys, this is what, these are the kind of men we'd love to follow. We'd love to to do marriage with. And so a couple of things like this, keep doing, or things like this, keep pursuing God. I love it when you pray. Um, I love it when you read the Bible, when you are with other men studying the Bible. That helps me trust you more when I see you on your knees following God. 
Um, They said, keep pursuing them. Keep saying, I love you. Keep listening actively. Put the phone away, right? Keep planning date nights. Um, Keep pursuing sex, they said. Um, Keep pursuing our children. Like one wife said, it's a turn on to see my husband loving our kids. Like just giving his life for our kids. Stop doing things like this. Stop being harsh and critical with your tone. Stop being so critical. Um, Stop pointing out what everybody's doing wrong. And some of these were just daggers. And again, guys, these are not to drive us to the guilt bunker, but these are to drive us harder into our identity uh, in Jesus Christ, okay? Don't try harder. Run into Jesus harder. Um, one, one was really practical. Stop being so busy. Stop being so overcommitted that when you come home, there's no energy left uh, for us. Um, start doing, again, there was some overlap, but start being a spiritual leader. Let's start praying. Let's start setting a spiritual tone in our home. And so um, just some great invitations, guys, that our wives are saying, come. And again, not for you to crank out, but for you to run to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me be this man. Help me be this leader in my marriage, in in my home. So uh, let me pray for us. And um, yeah, let's do this. Let me just pray. Uh, Father, again, this morning, uh, nothing we said here uh, be used to just beat down any of us, there's not a perfect marriage, not a perfect husband or wife in this room, but may this draw us and drive us into your arms, Jesus. Thank you that you are there to forgive and that you're there to give us power over sin in our lives that marriage can so easily expose. So um, please do that. Father, this morning I pray again for those who are not married. I pray that next week we would just honor them well with what the scripture teaches. I pray that that all of us would be reminded of the amazing privilege it is to run to you and to have our identity in Christ. And so please do that. And God, if there are any marriages struggling this morning, just crushes my heart. Uh, when I see that, when I hear that, when I see when my own marriage isn't what it could be, uh, Father, may we be a church that can be open about that, that we can ask for help, that we can pray for each other. I pray even this conference this weekend is a great chance for us to hear good teaching, but even more than that, to get into community with other couples and fight for each other's marriages. May we be that kind of church. So thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.